The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. On that evening of the first day of the week, while the disciples were behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, he said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of another, they are forgiven. But if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant John to record these words. We believe these words not only had power in John's day, but they have power today. So we pray, come Holy Spirit, open this word to us now that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. I want to be more fully alive. I want to be more fully alive. Like many others, we watched the royal wedding yesterday. I find as a Canadian um, extreme fascination at how enthralled y'all Americans are with the Brits and the royals. I mean, I thought there was a whole Boston Tea Party that solved that, but instead, every time there's anything with the British royals, it's just every American's glued. Uh, a former president once said this, he said, I think it's fair to say that Americans are quite fond of the royal family. They like them much better than their own American politicians. <laughs> now, part of the reason I think we love weddings is because on the day of a wedding, you look at a bride and a groom and, and you see a couple that you know, are fully alive. There, there's so much opportunity and potential there. There's vitality and life. They're alive. And we're drawn to that because if we're honest, most days we don't really feel completely fully alive. We, we feel like there's something missing. We feel like there's some meaning lacking in our lives, some value lacking in our lives, fullness lacking in our lives. Something deep within us, something from our very core in our creation yearns to be fully alive. I want to be fully alive. On that evening in our text from John 20, the evening of Easter, the evening of the resurrection, these disciples are made fully alive. These disciples become fully alive because Jesus breathes on them. The disciples become fully alive that night because Jesus breathes on them. Verse 22, and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And it's an odd moment, isn't it? I mean, the whole scene is rather odd. There's Jesus 
risen from the dead, shows them his hands and his side, the wounds of crucifixion, the wounds that have won for us salvation, the sins of the world born in his body, risen from the dead, conquering death. He says, peace be with you, declaring that now we are at peace with God because of his wounds. But then he breathes on them. And it's it's weird that he breathes on them until we remember the beginning of the story. And I mean the very beginning of the story. You go back to the very beginning, our origins. In Genesis chapter 2, when God makes humanity... Listen to these words, Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. See, right back at the beginning, when God is forming Adam, When he forms us, he breathes on him to make him alive. And so here in this room, the evening of the resurrection, this Easter evening, as Jesus breathes on his disciples, it's a new creation moment all over again. He's taking people who are dead and making them fully alive by his breath of life. And as he does this, as he breathes on them, even just these short few verses, really three verses, Verse 21, 22, 23, three verses, we see what this fully alive life looks like because of his breath. Jesus breathes on the disciples and he makes them alive with, first of all, capability. Capable, his breath makes them alive with capability. The ability to do things, to function, to move, to have the energy, the lifeblood to truly live. But then not only does he breathe on them and make them alive with capability, he breathes on them and makes them alive with calling. Not just capability, but calling, that that sense of purpose. What am I supposed to be doing with my life? The breath of Jesus gives them calling. But not only capability, not just calling, but that evening Jesus breathes on them and makes them alive with character, new character, his own character living in them. And so Jesus' breath makes us alive, us, not just those disciples. This story is for us. Jesus' breath, Jesus breathes on his people and makes us alive with capability. Verse 22, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, this breath of life that is coming from Jesus is the ruach of the Old Testament, the the wind of God, the breath of God, the Holy Spirit. We are Trinitarian as Christians. We believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Three persons, one God, and yet the Holy Spirit often gets forgotten. Over the weekend, uh, yesterday, I'm pretty sure that our whole neighborhood um, knows that we're Trinitarian as they listen to my youngest baptize our mini schnauzer about six or seven times over in the pool in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The whole neighborhood knows we're Trinitarian. I don't really know what to do with my mini schnauzer now. Like, do I regard him as a brother in Christ? Because he still does really gross things. The baptism didn't work. But we're Trinitarian, right? With three persons, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, except we function most days binitarian. Two gods, two two persons within the one God, Father and Son. Oh yes, okay, we believe in the Father, 
We believe in the Son, and then we kind of forget about the Holy Spirit. And, and the challenge of the Holy Spirit is, is even in the language we use, mis, mis, misplaced, um, misunderstood, even in the language we use. If you're reading a contemporary Bible or a contemporary prayer book, we refer to him as the Holy Spirit. If you're reading an older Bible or an older prayer book, we refer to him as the Holy Ghost. And as a former atheist, I got to tell you, you lost me right there. Is it spirit? Is it ghost? Which is it? It's like the little boys that are playing outside their house on a rainy day like today. There's these big potholes along the driveway, huge potholes filled with water. And this mother's watching her kids play and they're, they're pushing each other around. And then all of a sudden, the one brother pushes his brother right into the pothole, just soaked. And the mother runs to the door and says, what are you doing? And he says, don't worry, mom. We're playing church. She says, how are you playing church? Pushing each other into potholes. And he said, it's easy. In the name of the Father and of the Son and in the hole he goes. (laughs) The power of God. The Holy Spirit is the power of God. As we read the Hebrew Bible, we see the Holy Spirit come on prophets and priests and kings to give them the ability, the capability to do the work that is before them. The Holy Spirit comes on David, comes on Isaiah, comes on Aaron, these prophets, priests, and kings for particular people at particular times, particular places, particular tasks. This power of God, the very life of God dwelling in these people. But then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all believers. Peter explains this later in Acts chapter 2 when he quotes the prophet Joel and says, thus says the Lord, in the latter days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. See, Pentecost becomes this promise, this picture that for all believers, we have now been filled with that very power of God that was given to those prophets and priests and kings, now given to us as believers, making us capable, having the ability to do the things that God sends us to do. It's amazing when you meet someone who you you describe as fully capable. You've met people like this before, right? People who just exude from their pores that they are capable. Maybe it's in a particular gifting or in a particular vocation or calling. There's just something about them that exudes this person is fully capable. A number of years ago when I was still working as a stage actor, I had the opportunity to audition for a master class. You had to audition to get into kind of a weekend workshop with Marcel Marceau, the French mime famous for creating Bip the Clown. We all auditioned, I got in, and I was in the master class, and as the day began, Marceau's students came in to begin the day, just getting us limbered up and trained and explained some of the language he'd use, and then at a certain moment, into the room walked Marcel Marceau, 75 years of age, and from the top of his hair to the bottom of his toes, that man exuded capability. He would move his hand, and we were mesmerized. 
This man was an artist at the core of his being, fully capable, could keep an audience in suspense for two hours without making a sound, awestruck, capable. And yet this is the promise of Pentecost. As Jesus breathes on us, he's saying, I'm coming to make you alive. I'm breathing on you to make you alive, to be capable filled with the very power of God, the Holy Spirit. But see, it's not just that Jesus breathing on us makes us alive with capability. Jesus breathing on us makes us alive with calling. I mean, it would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it, to be fully capable and have no idea what to do with it? What do I do with this? Well, Jesus' breath, Jesus' Holy Spirit breath on us gives us a call, a calling. Verse 23 Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of another, they are forgiven. But if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, now these words are sometimes misunderstood and argued about in the church. They sound a little similar to Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And people have debated that. They said, well, does that mean the church just has some sort of arbitrary ability to say, forgiven, not forgiven, bound, loose, not bound, loose? Is that really what it means? And it doesn't mean that. Here's what it means. Jesus standing there on the day of the resurrection, showing them his wounds, speaking peace over them, peace between God and man. He's saying, listen, this right here, what I have just done, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is how the world is made right. This is how forgiveness of sins takes place in this world, through me, through my sacrifice for all who would believe in me. And so what he's saying in verse 23 is as you go into the world, you take this gospel, this good news with you. And if people receive this gospel proclamation, their sins will be forgiven. And if people do not receive your gospel proclamation, their sins are not forgiven because there is one way under heaven by which a person can be right before God. One way under heaven, a person can be made forgiven before God and it is through the blood of Christ Jesus. And so as you go, you've been given this gospel. This is your calling to live out the gospel, to speak the gospel, to live out the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we celebrate at this table every time we gather. This gospel on display for the world. If people receive it, your gospel, forgiveness. If they do not receive it, there's no forgiveness. This is the calling. This is what we have in our lips, in our lives, at work, at home, in the world, our calling. Jesus breathes on us and says, not only am I breathing on you to make you alive with capability, I'm breathing on you to make you alive with a calling. What am I to do with my life? How am I to reorient my family life and my work life and all my leisure activities? How is God using this to live out the gospel that others may hear and see and believe and be forgiven. We live in a world of pain. We live in a world of brokenness. We live in a world full of evil. When we hear about yet another school shooting this week in Santa Fe, how do we respond? We pray. We pray for those families that are bereaved. 
We pray for those families and those who are right now recovering from injuries. But our ultimate response in the face of evil, the ultimate response from people who have been breathed on by Jesus is to declare the gospel in season and out of season because the good news of Jesus Christ is the only way that sin and brokenness and evil will ever be ultimately dealt with in this world. It is only as people respond to the good news of God and Jesus Christ that evil will be finally tread under our feet. And so we speak the gospel. We speak the gospel seeking a world that knows forgiveness. A friend of mine once said, that there are three necessary conversions that a Christian has to go through. Three conversions, not one. I said, really? I said, you're making this complicated. I thought I just turned to Jesus. He said, go with me on this. Three conversions. Your first conversion is your conversion to Christ. You turn to Jesus. That's the most basic, most essential. That's everything. You turn to Jesus. I'm converted to Christ. My focus is on him. But then he says, your next conversion is your conversion to the church. Jesus' body here on earth that you realize that you can't just have your eyes completely fixed on Jesus and not have other Christians around you, those who you lean on and grow with and have prayers with, a family. So you're converted to Christ, you're converted to the church, and he said the final conversion, the third conversion is your conversion to the world, where you then say, now I'm with Christ and I, I'm with the church and my eyes are fixed now on how do I reach the world? How do I turn my focus to the world? How do I seek to live out the gospel that I've been given in the world? See, Jesus' breath makes us alive with capability. Jesus' breath makes us alive with calling. This Holy Spirit enabling us and sending us forth with the calling. But not only that, Jesus breathing on us makes us alive with character. His character. And this is vital because if I go into the world fully capable because of Jesus' breath and, and fully with a sense of calling because of Jesus' breath, but there hasn't been any interior work done on my heart and my mind, then people will say, wow, very capable. Wow, you know, what a clear calling. But man, his character does not line up with what he's saying. A work has to be done to make sure that the one who is giving the message has themselves been transformed. Jesus breathes on us to make us alive in our character. Verse 21 says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And do you know what that means when he, when he says that? Just think about that for a moment. Just as the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. He's saying, I am sending you into the world. I'm breathing on you with the Holy Spirit, sending you into the world with the same power, the same importance, the same vision, the same scope, as when the Father sent me, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's why the Father sent the Son. Why does the Son send us? It's John 3.16 just slightly amended. The Son so loved the world that he sent his disciples. He gave the world his disciples that all who would believe in Jesus because of those disciples declaring that gospel would believe in him and not perish but have eternal life. You see, as we go into the world, we go as Christ into the world. We're his body. 
We're his hands and feet. And he does this work by breathing on us to transform our hearts and our minds, to make us more like himself, his character. And you may say, yeah, but that's impossible. I mean, look at me. How could that possibly be? Again, we need him to breathe on us. I really wanted to be a magician when I was growing up, and it didn't go anywhere. And so I found this trick recently that I think really, what I love about magic was that magic shows would tell a story. It wouldn't just be to sort of amaze, but you could use it to tell a story. And so I found this trick recently, and I thought, okay, this, this kind of tells the Pentecost story. This is kind of a picture of, of the necessity of Jesus breathing on us. Because the reality is, before we meet Jesus, before we meet Jesus, we really um, are, are, are kind of like, you know, a, a blank slate in a, in a, in a, in a picture book, right? There's just, there's just nothing going on, nothing there. And, and, and that's fine, except it's a, it's a coloring book. And all of a sudden we meet Jesus. Jesus comes into our life and we go, oh man, there's, there's some meaning and purpose and value in the world. And, and we start having, you know, some form and, and some substance, right? The pictures, but the problem is it's a coloring book. There's no colors in here. And so Jesus breathes on us, puts his Holy Spirit on us, transforms our character, and all of a sudden we have color and form I'm here all week. (laughs) You see, on Pentecost, what we're seeing is that God is bringing his Holy Spirit into these disciples' lives. You got to remember the story, right? Pentecost, what is Pentecost celebrating? Pentecost was the Jewish festival that celebrated the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Right, so here's God's people up on Mount Sinai, and here's what you need to remember about Mount Sinai, is up on the mountain, there was lots of noise and fire when Moses was up on the mountain. Noise and fire in the giving of the law. And God gives the law, but as Moses comes down the mountain, what does he find? He finds them all worshiping like pagans. And so what, what, is, what does Moses do? What does Charlton Heston do with the, uh, with the stone tablets? He breaks them at the base of the mountain. And it's a prophetic act. He's saying, before I've even spoken God's law over you, you've already broken it. You cannot seem to live this law. And so there's there's this promise, this hope that emerges within the prophets. Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36, that God says through him, he says, one day I will pour up my spirit and place my spirit inside of you that I may move you to keep my commandments and obey my laws. In other words, I will put my spirit in you to change you and enable you to actually live my laws, to live as my people in this world. And then on the day of Pentecost, what happens? They're in that room in Acts chapter two and there is a mighty sound of a rushing wind and tongues of fire that descend on the disciples. Noise and fire on the celebration of the festival of Mount Sinai. It's noise and fire all over again because it's it's Mount Sinai and the giving of the law all over again. But this time, the difference is it's not written on tablets of stone. It's written on the tablets of our human hearts. The Spirit comes in and converts our character and transforms us. I have to do it again. We, We move 
from being a people who do not have any ability to live the way God wants us to live. We don't even know. He gives us the law, and we say, okay, now I know how I'm supposed to live, but I can't live it until the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. Tablets of hearts. The law living in us, enabled to live by his spirit. I'm not giving up my day job. In Galatians chapter two, Paul says this, of this character formation. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to be more alive. So do you. We all want to be more alive. In that room on Easter evening, Jesus makes his disciples come alive as he breathes on them. As he breathes the Holy Spirit onto them, he makes them alive with capability. He makes them alive with calling. And he makes them alive with a new character that's growing in their hearts and minds. On the day of my ordination, I woke up petrified that morning, knowing that this was the day that I was going to have a bishop lay his hands on me and, you know, set me into ministry. And this story, though, it's about ordination, applies to all of us. We all have a common call into ministry. But I had this moment, I woke up that morning terrified. And, and, and I was terrified because I just knew of my own worthiness, my brokenness, my, 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 my sense of just feeling like I'm not fully alive. How can I possibly lead? And so through the day, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was just terrified and this this tune was running through my head and 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 I I couldn't remember why why was this tune so important and then I realized the tune going through my head was for my ordination retreat see I'd taken a couple days to 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 prepare for this moment and the text that I had had at my ordination retreat was Ezekiel 37 the valley of the dry bones you know the story of Ezekiel there, and he, and he looks over the Valley of Dry Bones, and, 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 and we're told, behold, they were very dry. In other words, there's no life there. And, and what does God say? God says in Ezekiel 37, verse 7, he asked him to prophesy. So Ezekiel says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied over the bones, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, O son of man, prophesy and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And I suddenly realized on the day of my ordination why in my head I had kept humming to myself, Ezekiel connected them dry bones. Ezekiel connected them dry bones. Ezekiel connected them dry bones. Now hear the word of the Lord. Them bones, them bones are gonna walk around. Them bones, them bones are gonna walk around. Them bones, them bones are gonna walk around. Now hear the word of the Lord. As I knelt before the bishop, dry bones. 
Honestly, it was summertime. There was a door open. I'm sure there was a breeze. But as I had his hands laid on my head and he called on the spirit of God, I felt wind surrounding me. I looked down and realized my robes like I'm wearing now were billowing in this wind surrounding me. And I knew at that moment why the Lord had put that text in my ordination retreat. I knew why the Lord had put that song in my head through the day. Because in that moment, Jesus was breathing on these dry bones. We, brothers and sisters, we are the dry bones. How can we do this? How can we go into the world? How can we believe this, this promise of capability this promise of a calling, this promise of a new character. How can we believe it? We are dry bones. But Jesus is breathing on your dry bones. He's breathing his breath, his spirit on your bones this day. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.